April 3rd, he makes a big late night speech. There's another, ironically, tremendous thunderstorm going on in Memphis. The bottom's falling out. There's rain and thunder and lightning. It's just pouring really thick. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. Something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. He gives a speech in a crowded Masonic temple. It's called his mountaintop speech, and we kind of always hear snippets of it, usually the end. But the mountaintop speech is really interesting. Um, he alludes over and over again to his death. He say, if I die, if I die, if I die. And he'd been doing that for a while, for several years, really since Kennedy had been shot. He kind of knew that he was bound to be assassinated at some point. He was very focused on his own death. Like anybody, I would like to live. A long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. So he makes frequent references to the speech in If I Die, You Can Still Make It. And it ends, and it's very awesome and powerful ending about, you know, if I, if I die and I don't make it to the promised land, you know, you can make it. And he compares himself to Moses, you know, being on Mount Nebo, looking over into the promised land. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And that's a message of hope that, that really resonates with the black community who are feeling kind of beaten down. And King is here saying, you can do it. I may not make it. You may not make it. Who knows when it's going to happen? But it's going to happen, and you can have faith in that. So he goes back to his hotel, that night, the Lorraine Motel, and uh, they're preparing to lead the march the next day. But then, of course, April 4th is the day that King is assassinated. Um, he's on the balcony of Lorraine Motel overlooking, talking to some men down below. A shot comes in from across the street somewhere. Um, he survives for a few minutes, but not long. Take him to St. Joseph's, where they pronounce him dead. Dan Rather reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King had planned to lead another civil rights march in Memphis next Monday. We got the latest on the story. I've never prayed about a sermon like I have about this one. And in this sermon, as you'll see in a few minutes, I actually talk less than any other sermon I've ever given here. When I interviewed for this job, which is nearly four years ago now, the only thing I knew about Memphis, the only thing, was that it was the city where Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. After being here nearly three years, I know that there is so much more to the city than that. And yet, that moment, what happened on that balcony of the Lorraine Motel, in so many ways, is a part of who we are as a city, that it's changed us as a city. It's a part of our consciousness in the same way that it's changed many other cities across the country and around the world. 
The reason that he came here, I also didn't know. What I did know was that he died here, but what I didn't know years ago, and really didn't even know until recently after arriving and beginning to study the history of Memphis, was why King came to Memphis where his life ultimately ended. And that's the story we're going to tell next. The reason that he came is men like Herbert Parsons, who's a member here at Highland, is in our chapel service, worked on the sanitation department, and was a part of the sanitation strike that brought King here. So I want, to listen, I want you to listen with me to Scott Frizzell tell the story of the sanitation strike mixed in with an interview of Herb Parsons. I should clarify the reason that we've asked Scott to tell that is, is not because he's one of our children's ministers or because he's part of the growing Frizzell clan or because he's a history teacher at Harding, but because Scott is finishing his Ph.D. in African American Studies at University of Memphis, which uh, makes him the perfect one to tell the story. So I want you to listen to the reason King came, as told by Scott Frizzell and Herbert Parsons. Let's watch this. So talk to me about um, the sanitation strike. Basically, the sanitation department, they employ white administrators who work in the office, and then they have black men who work on the trucks. They drive the trucks, they load the garbage into the truck by hand. Uh, they're not supplied uniforms or gloves. Um, there's no locker room for them to change or shower in. So certainly, just from what's being provided to them, it's not great. But they're also incredibly poorly compensated, especially compared to those white administrators who sit in the office all day. And perhaps making it worse is that whenever weather is poor, like whenever there's a lot of rain or they just think the conditions aren't good for picking up trash, they'll cancel all the black workers. And there's no pay for that. There's no insurance. There's no coverage. So many of these black workers are highly motivated to get out there regardless of the weather, regardless of the elements, uh, to get the stuff done because they know if they can't, they're going to get canceled, they're not going to get their paycheck. Regardless, you had to work, you know, you didn't, uh, wasn't no uh, time off of bad weather or anything like that. We were dealing with these 55-gallon drums, you have to roll them from the backyard to the curb, and that, and that, was, that was nasty. Uh, you towed it on your head, and uh, man, you all that uh, water and waste, and then the tubs had a hole in it, it dripped down your clothes, your neck, you know, no, you know. And that kind of plays into how the whole strike starts. And so there's one particularly rainy, stormy day, much like we get in Memphis from time to time, where the clouds just open up and it all falls out. Um, and one truck is driving down Colonial, actually, in East Memphis, headed towards South Memphis for a dump. And they're going to unload for the day and be done. And it's pouring, um, but they're just trying to get the work done because they don't want to get canceled. They don't want to get sent home. Uh, there's actually laws against them stopping in a neighborhood until the rain passes um, because white people were tired of black sanitation workers hanging out on their lawns during poor weather. Um, so they're driving through this rain. Uh, there's basically there's four people in a car. Okay, only two of them can fit in the cab, so the other two guys stand on the back of the sanitation truck and hold on. Because of the rain, uh, these two men, Echol Cole and Robert Woods, they climb into the truck for some sort of shelter from the rain. As they're going down Colonial, the truck hits a bump. Um, something triggers within the truck, um, and it starts compacting. Those trucks uh, uh, were malfunctioning, and uh, the 
kicked the gear in for the pack, and uh, it just 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 uh, crushed those guys. They was they was in the back of the hopper of the truck trying to stay dry, and uh, that thing just went off and uh, crushed them up. You know. Is that something that you can remember doing, riding in the back to stay dry like that? Yeah, I have that. Did it several times. But. And it kills both men, and there's obviously great hurt and pain within their community about that, but it's also frustration because it seems so avoidable. And now it had cost these men their lives. They would get no more money for their families. Uh, one of the men had a pregnant wife at home. But meanwhile, the white community is completely silent on the affair. In fact, actually, the next week in the newspapers, it doesn't appear at all. And so it's almost as if nothing would come of it at first. But then when the other workers walk out in solidarity with them and refuse to work in those conditions anymore, that's when suddenly news starts picking it up. I was, I, I, I was uh, willing. I wasn't so much excited because it was, it was take effect on our pay and everything. You know, we wasn't getting, you know, during the strike you had to survive the best you could, you know. Was the, was the problem that Mayor Loeb and other officials wouldn't listen? The, yes, that's the problem. They wouldn't listen at all. The white community especially just doesn't really seem to understand what's going on from the black community's side. So whenever the strike increases in strength or volume, instead of seeing the people behind it that have suffered and dealt with this for so long, all they see is the trash that's mounting up in their yards. All right, so the strike is peaceful from the beginning. Okay, the goal is draw attention to this problem, let, them, let the white community know what has happened. Um, so they start marching through downtown, march down major streets and thoroughfares, peaceful protests, much in the mold of what has been set before them through the civil rights movement. So they're marching down uh, Poplar, marching down Beale um, peacefully, wearing signs. Uh, this is where, of course, we see the I am a man signs come out because they're asking for, more than anything, respect, which they're not receiving. And as the strike grows, James Lawson, who's a minister in Memphis and a good friend of Dr. King, uh, he's keeping in touch with King and he's writing him letters and telling him all about the strike and begging King to come down to Memphis to aid the strike. At the time, he's in the slums of Chicago trying to draw attention to poverty, which is exactly what a lot of the frustration in the black community is about, these economic problems that aren't as obvious as a white bathroom and a black bathroom. Um, so Lawson's keeping him informed and King's very interested, but he still doesn't want to give up on what he's working on in Chicago. Eventually, they're able to get King to come down. So King comes in, he meets with everybody, he makes a, a big speech. Uh, it, 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 was, it was exciting to, to hear him speak. He believed in uh, the Lord, you know, and he, he, he was trying to keep it nonviolent at all times, you know. He was, that's what he, he would tell us all the time. That's no violence, just let's march. They start marching down the streets, but as soon as King starts marching, he already feels a little bit nervous because the crowd isn't quite what he's accustomed to leading with his nonviolent movement. Um, and he tells Lawson, because he's a little bit nervous, that the crowd's a little 
too angry to go march peacefully, so they make an appeal, we're going to march peacefully, they start marching, uh, but then violence breaks out. Um, we don't really know who starts anything, but uh, there's rocks going through store windows, there's looting, the frustration that they've been feeling for so long is finally coming out. From something that was about dignity and peaceful protest, it suddenly just descends into this scene of anarchy and chaos and certain, certainly total lack of respect for, for anybody. But that certainly attracts more national headlines to Memphis because now it's not just another repeated story of a peaceful march in a city for some respect. Suddenly there's violence, which unfortunately means there's a lot more attention. Was the, was the problem that Mayor Loeb and other officials wouldn't listen? Yes, that's the problem. They wouldn't listen at all. Lindsay and I did premarital counseling years ago, and we had this terrific counselor who also frustrated us a lot, okay? Her favorite words, two words, were just listen, okay? So Lindsay would be explaining something that I did occasionally that was slightly less than favorable. I know, hard to believe. She'd be explaining it, and I'd want to jump in and correct her and explain it, and the counselor would say, nope, Eric, Eric, let's just listen for a second. And then I would be explaining something, and Lindsay would want to jump in and contend, and she'd say, ah, 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 Lindsay, let's just listen. And as frustrating as it was, it worked. It was like this magic potion, listening. So exercise here. Think about the person that you are closest to, the person in your life that you have the closest relationship with. Okay, when that person says, when you do this, or when you say this, it makes me feel like this. It is always wrong to say in the response, no, you don't. Oh, it doesn't make you feel that way. That's wrong. The right choice is always to say, okay, tell me more. Three words, tell me more. To just listen. Of course, we know that, right? We know we're supposed to listen. James, in James 1.19, says it like this. You can probably quote it. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Listening is this thoroughly Christian virtue that it's really great to talk about, which is kind of funny. But what if listening is central to who we are as Christians? Now, I'm not talking about the rest of the world, okay? The rest of the world doesn't buy into this principle that we should listen. Just look at your social media feed. It is full of people's thoughtless and rushed commentary on thousands of issues on which they are not experts, and they haven't listened, but it does, they don't feel like they should withhold their opinion. The world needs to hear it. The world is desperate for it. But what if what James is saying is right? That Christians, those who've been baptized, into the lordship of Jesus Christ have thereby lost their right to speak without listening first. I've been trying to listen. And what I've been listening to lately reminds me of the times that brought King to our city in 1968. In response to recent events in Ferguson, Missouri, in New York, the airwaves are full of tense and often thoughtless commentary on race in America today. So back in November, the very beginning of November, knowing that I would speak on this Sunday right before Martin Luther King Day tomorrow, 
I decided that until then, I would just listen. I, I listened to everything I could gather about the current crisis. I read every book that I could read, every article I could read, had conversations with countless Highlanders and others outside of Highland. And as I listened to all of these people, to all of these opinions, I started to feel this overwhelming desire to let you all listen with me. So I grabbed Russ, he grabbed his camera, and we started recording these conversations. And that's what you've already seen today and what you're going to listen to next. And what I want to invite you to do today is just listen with me. One of the second, second or third conversations I had was with Felton and Francis Brown. The reason I wanted to talk to them was because their experience is very different than mine. I wanted to know what was it like to be black in the days of King, sanitation strikes, sit-ins, and school integration. Listen to what they told me. Tell me your names. I'm Francis A. Griffin Brown. I'm Felton R. Brown. Francis, where did you grow up? Maybe that's a better question. Sorry. Yes, I grew up in the, what they call the Quad Cities in Alabama, specifically Tuscumbia, Alabama. Felton, where did you grow up? I grew up in a uh, small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So do any experiences come to mind for you? Uh, I guess the classic one would be the fact that uh, when I graduated from college uh, in the 1960s, I, of course, sent my applications to various parts of the universe, <laughs> basically. I, I was interviewed by telephone in a small city outside of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And it was a rather extensive interview. In fact, there were two or three telephone interviews. They did not know that I was black because they said I didn't sound black over the telephone, which I, which I know I don't. Anyway, they made an offer and they wanted to see me in person. Uh, so they could, you know, work out the uh, starting date and all that stuff. So, of course, I, I think a, w a week later, I showed up in person, and of course, the people were very, very, very embarrassed. The principal, his, he was red-faced. Then he said, Mr. Brown, he said, it, 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 it's not you, it's, it's just, it's just, and he was just, he stammered. Of course, I didn't get the job, and uh, when you're 22 years old, that hurts. That hurts. Uh, I think I was more disappointed than bitter. I became bitter a little later on, but the, the, first, the first effect was uh, abject disappointment. Okay, so you mentioned that you were disappointed at first and became bitter later. Mm -hmm. What do you think was the cause of that? We aren't equal. We, we, apparently, we aren't equal. And uh, I began to see it then. You know, it became a little more indelible. So Francis, you've told me a story before about um, your role in the integration of schools. Yes, right? yes. So can you tell us that story? Yes. The night before school was to start in 1965, my family informed us that we would be integrating the local high school. The next morning, they drove us over to the school. Uh, arriving to the school, walking that gauntlet, you heard racial slurs and I even remember being spat at, but it didn't deter us. We went ahead and we integrated the schools. However, one story that comes to mind and that I'm reminded of when we have reunions is that I was late for geometry class and there was only one seat. I walked in to sit in the seat and when I did, 
A young man sitting next to me got up, walked away, went stood by the uh, chalkboard, didn't want to sit next to me. It was very hurtful. So the next day, I arrived to class on time because I knew where I was going. And I sat down in the seat. And I don't know if the instructor had something to do with this or not. But there was one seat left next to me. The young man walks in, sees the seat. I guess he says, I can't be late. He sat down. I got up. I walked to the chalkboard. <laughs> and when I did, the class erupted into applause. So that was, it, it was a learning experience. Thank goodness this young man and I at Clash Reunions can laugh about it now because back then it was not funny. So you've since uh, interacted with this man at reunions. Is that, yes. right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, at the first Clash Reunion. So how I was that interaction? It was a little awkward at first because I walked over to him. I said, remember me? <laughs> he lowered his head and he said, yes, I do. And I'm very ashamed of what I did because apparently the teacher got a hold of him and spoke with him about what he had done and how it hurt my feelings, and all because of the color of my skin. Yeah. Do you think that the uh, feelings he had back then, um, do you think uh, those feelings are genuinely gone? And do you, think, do you think he's an example of somebody who could be genuinely changed? I do, because he told me when he went off to college, he took some African-American studies. So he had a chance to learn. And he said, after those classes, he wished he could turn back the hands of time. He would like to have been one of the ones to lead me into that classroom. What if you think about those two words, just listen? Not as a generic instruction to listen, but as a description of the type of listening you need to do so that just becomes an adjective. You need to listen for the purpose of justice. Listen justly, a just listen. What if God's people aren't called to just listen, but to just listening? If I had to summarize the first eight chapters of Jeremiah, which is the book that we're in in this series we're starting the year with called Flux, if I was going to summarize those first eight chapters in two words, it would be those two words with that idea in mind, just listen. This Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, is anticipating the destruction of his favorite city, Jerusalem. Babylon's about to roll out of the north, destroy the, his city in violence, and he knows why. God's telling him why. The reason is a listening problem. Look at these texts behind me as I summarize. God says that Israel's ears are closed in chapter 6. That they're not taking care of immigrants and people who look different, of widows and orphans, because they don't hear them in chapter 7. They don't defend the case of the fatherless or the poor. They don't speak up for them because they don't know what to say because they haven't been listening. And the result is violence and injustice. And the majority don't even notice. How do we know that? Because this is what he says in chapter 8. Therefore... The reason, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners because from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people 
as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. In other words, they lie to themselves and the people who are listening to them. They spin this illusion of peace, and they put it out there when there is no peace. The people with the most influence, the religious majority, lies. God says in chapter 5, the prophets prophesy lies, and my people love it this way. Israel was listening. It's just that they're not listening to the right people. They're listening to this majority that the prophets and priests represent, this majority that just tells them what they want to hear. Hey, it's all peace out there. Don't worry that's all in our past. Let's just move on. It's all peace. Let's not bring it up. That just makes it worse. Really, it's peace. And God says, majorities do that. And God says, if you're going to be my person, though, you have got to intentionally listen to the minority because that is a just listen. Now, sure, sometimes it might really be all peace out there. But if someone dares, if they are brave enough to raise an objection to that claim, then God's people cannot afford to ignore it. If someone says it is not all peace, you have to listen. Howard Zinn said it like this, he's a historian, the cries of the poor are not always just, but if you do not listen to them, you will never know what justice is. So, what happens if you stop, if you just stop for a minute, and you filter out the majority opinion that is so easy to access, and you try to listen to the minority? What can happen? Let's watch this and find out. Okay, so uh, tell me your name. I'm Ron Wade. What do you do, Ron? And I'm the executive director of Hope Works. How long have you been doing that? I have been at Hope Works about six and a half years. What were you doing before that? Before that, I spent a career in sales with a company called R.R. Donnelly. In many ways, I think God blesses your life by putting you in situations or circumstances that ordinarily you wouldn't experience. And I think that's been the case for me at Hope Works. I came from a middle class. Um, Two parents, uh, school, university, a graduate school. When I came to Hope Works about six and a half years ago, I, my, my thinking has been changed in terms of being uh, maybe a, a man of privilege in how you're, you're growing up. I had a, a situation uh, several years ago that has really changed my thinking and continues to change it. I was with a pretty prominent African-American minister uh, in Memphis, and in our discussions of trying to get to know each other, I'm trying to learn more uh, to be a more effective director at HopeWorks. One of the conversations that we had, I said, I'm really not responsible for what happened uh, during the Civil War days or during the Civil Rights days. Don't, don't hold me accountable for that. Just treat me from where we are so far our relationship and going forward. I don't think that, that in, in my uh, heart and mind, I don't think I'm a racist at all. I think I want to treat people 
fairly and equally. I think that's what God calls us to do. So don't hold me accountable for that. Just judge me on our relationship. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Ron, that sounds good, but you know what? It's not quite that easy. And so I walked out of the meeting still thinking the same way. But over the years, I do think he has a point. One of the reasons I, I think that he has a point, recently I, I saw this movie, 12 Years a Slave. It's a true story about a man that was hijacked to New Orleans and was sold into slavery. And after I saw that movie, I began to see just for a little bit what he thinks about me as being a, a white man, middle class man, and I do feel like now, as particularly as Christians have a responsibility for some things that's happened in the past. And I have a responsibility to be aware of that and be sensitive to that background. If not, then I'm not really making that effort to, to make a relationship, which I think God calls us to do. It can be powerful to listen. It can change you just listening. So what I want to do as we move towards a close is to invite you to listen with me to the thoughts of all those that we interviewed as we, we asked them all the same question, where do we go from here? Okay, and while we were at HopeWorks, we also uh, interviewed Antonio and Tara, who will be in this video, but you haven't seen them yet. We wanted to know, okay, given what Jeremiah is claiming here, Okay, given what James says in James 1.19, what's it going to take for Christians, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Native American, Middle Eastern, for Christians to really be one in Christ Jesus like Paul claims we are in Galatians? Like, what's it going to take for that to be the reality here at Highland? And this is what they said. them to know about their brothers and sisters in Christ who are black? What do you want them to hear from them? Well, they show that already love, you know, and respect for one another. That's all we, that's all we ask. There's no animosity at all, you know. They, they, they respect me as well as I respect them, so I mean, you know, that's, that's all we can ask. Get to know them. They should get to know us. I know it sounds simplistic. But I, I think if we get to know each other, I think that's the key. I would like, like Felton, to sit down and have dialogue, good dialogue. I want to make sure that they understand that I do live in their world, your world, every day. I want them to understand. They have no idea what's going on in my world. Dialogue, that's number one. It sorely needs to be talked about. And we can't go around, I don't want to offend, I don't want to step on. We, uh, we got to go, we have to be uncomfortable. We have to go into uncomfortable situations. Uh, and, and let's say we meet and it, there's no end result, walk away, I go to sleep every night knowing that I tried to help somebody. If you don't come from a place of attempting to understand those things, if you don't come from a place of listening to other people to try to understand not just what they're saying, but what they mean, not just the words that they're using, but the place, the, the mental, emotional place that they are coming from, 
then you're never going to understand whether they could possibly be right or wrong. Be bold in wanting to genuinely know where we come from and how we feel. Be proactive in making a statement and being able to stand by it and say, okay, I know, you know, you guys feel a sense of um, oppression, you know, because a lot of people still do. They feel it, we feel a sense of oppression, but that's not where we're trying to go. We're really trying to fix it, heal it, not just put a Band-Aid on it and move forward. Just listen. That's the first step. The step that you can take to contribute to racial generosity and unity in this church, in Memphis, and around the world is that, to just listen. You heard it from each of the people that we interviewed, the people that we listened to today. So what I want to propose, the takeaway, is this, that every Highlander beginning today and Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow and extending through the month of February, Black History Month, that every Highlander will take a moratorium on their speech on the topic of race and that you will commit this next month to listening. No social media posts on the topic, no remarks and conversation, and if somebody asks you, you can tell them, for the next month, I'm just listening. We're also a part of an increasingly diverse church, and many of our black members have already contacted me in anticipation of this sermon and told me that they would love to answer your questions if they're asked in that spirit. Okay. And that's where relationship, where unity actually begins. Honest questions and the ability to listen to honest answers. So to prime that pump on the back of the link, we have included questions to ask yourself and questions to ask others. So the question that I have for you is, do you have the courage and then the humility to actually ask them? And then are you willing to just listen? Will you stand with me as we praise the risen Lord who makes us all one? Let's worship together. Live in our hearts, fill this fire.